Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Discover. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. That means no waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. Real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by PNC Bank. Some things in life should be boring, like banking, because boring is steady, pragmatic, and responsible. You don't want your bank to be surprising or shocking. Shocking is for hidden truths and theories, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Inc. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Hey there, I'm Stephen Dubner, and this is a Freakonomics Radio Extra, our full interview with Mark Teixeira, the former baseball all-star who's been appearing in our Hidden Side of Sports series. Teixeira retired after the 2016 season, having played 14 years in the big leagues. He hit 409 home runs. He won lots of offensive and defensive awards, and he helped lead the New York Yankees to a World Series title in 2009. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Mark Teixeira, and thanks for listening. Mark, if you would, then just start by saying your name and what you do. Mark Teixeira, uh, currently an ESPN analyst and a real estate developer oh. in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh-huh. Very good. How old are you now? I am 38. Okay. You played, what, 14 14 years, seasons? 15 professionally, 14 in the bigs. Yeah. All right. Let's go back. So for people who know baseball, Mark Teixeira is a big, 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 big name. For people who don't know baseball, and there are people out there, um, you know, we'll, we'll expose them to you. Let's start with you as a kid. Uh, talk about growing up. Baltimore, I believe. Talk about growing up as a kid, your family, your dad was a uh, Naval uh, Academy graduate. Just describe you, your family, and especially sports. Yeah, so I kind of had one of those, um, you know, just really cool childhoods where, uh, you know, both my parents were around. I had an si- older sister. Um, you know, my dad, being a Navy guy, graduated from the Academy, was, um, you know, was tough on me, but fair. And, you know, really kind of gave me a, uh, you know, a blueprint uh, of how to act and treating people with respect and, you know, keeping my hair short and, you know, making <laughs> sure I said yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, and those type of things, things that he learned in at the Naval Academy. And so, um, you know, I was just really lucky to have a, a family around me that, um, you know, gave me every opportunity to succeed. You know, I played every sport as a kid. We didn't have, you know, the, the cell phones and, and all the cool technology back in, in the day when I grew up in, in Severna Park, Maryland. So I went outside and played. Was baseball your best sport from the outset? It always was. Yeah. Uh, and I actually enjoyed playing basketball more. Um, I played backyard football. I played soccer, tennis, and uh, but I d- I was always good at baseball. So I knew baseball was going to be um, you know a sport for my future. Can you pinpoint the moment or whatever day, month, year when you kind of said to yourself like, oh, I'm way better than everybody else yes. at this? You know, and, and most kids grow up 
being, you know, if you're an elite athlete, you're going to be the best kid on your team. But you never really think you're going to make it until you get that first call or letter from a pro scout. And I was a sophomore in high school, and pro scouts started showing up to my games. And that's when I was talking to my coaches and talking to my dad and talking to some of these scouts saying, wow, I could actually play professional baseball. How cool is that? Right. Now, you're role model as i understand it was don mattingly yes is that well, was my he favorite the one player, my role model was my dad my okay. favorite player growing up was don mattingly gotcha. um and so he was a guy that i loved the way he played the game i loved his his sweet swing so smooth at first base and growing up in baltimore you know i loved Kyle Ripken, loved eddie murray but mattingly there was something about donnie baseball that just you know really grabbed me as a young kid. Right. Okay. So of course he was a long time and beloved and very very good first baseman for the Yankees. Also very good defensive first baseman. You became exactly that many years later. I am just curious. Um, more of a character issue. You said your dad was your role model, and one can see how that worked for you. Mattingly was your favorite player. It strikes me that his character was not that different from your dad's. Keep your head down. Right. I'm just curious, what if your favorite player had been, you know, Reggie Jackson? Would you have become a different kind of player in person? You know what? I think uh, that's a great question. I think I chose somebody like Don Mattingly because of his character. And, you know, I, while some of these players, you know, today have lots of flash and flair and, you know, I like the grinders. I, I, I wasn't blessed with amazing speed and just athletic ability that oozed out of my pores. But I felt like I had a gift to hit a baseball, and I grinded with everything else. Yeah. Everything else in my career, I had to work for. When you say a gift, you know, there's this huge debate in everything in life, um, anything that involves what we call talent. So it could be sports, but it could be medicine, you name it, about the difference between A, nurture and nature, and B, talent versus, you know, work and what's called deliberate practice, a 10,000-hour rule. Tell me where you come down on that. Obviously, you have yourself as an example, and we know that you were physically talented from an early age. But talk about what it was that got you to be a professional at the highest level. Yep. I think the gift is number one, because without the gift, you can't take a kid that has zero athletic ability and just happens to be a hard worker, and he goes to the big leagues. You know, At any given time, there's a 1,000 big leaguers out there. But there's probably 10,000 players, whether in college or amateur baseball or, or low professional ranks, that are good enough to someday make it. Talent-wise, you're That's, saying. Yes. There's 10,000 talented players with a gift. It's of those 10,000 players, which are the ones that work hard enough? Which are the ones that figure it out? Which are the ones that get it, that make the right decisions and, and you know train the right way and eat the right way and do preparation for games? Those are the ones that make it. So I think the gift is first, but then you have to put the time in. Can you think of a particular player um, or a group of players who, when you were either in high school or college, uh, obviously we know you were very, very good, but maybe you saw some guys who looked to be on the surface more talented than you and didn't make it? Yeah, the, the most talented player that I ever saw as an amateur was Corey Patterson. And guys that know baseball, he was a fourth or fifth overall pick from the Chicago Cubs my draft year. And, and he had a decent big league career. But talent-wise, I would kill for his talent. And, you know, he had some injuries and just, you know, couldn't quite make it over the top. But talent-wise, there were a ton of guys that I thought had more talent than me. But um, I, I thought I figured it out what is, at a what do you young mean, age. What do you mean by that? Figured it out means you know, in high school, you know, by the time I was a sophomore and I knew I had a chance, I started preparing. 
So I started working out and and actually called the Florida State baseball coach because they were the, the number one team in the country at the time and said, can you please just send me your workout regimen? And so I started doing the Florida State baseball workout regimen. You know, I didn't go to my high school homecoming for three straight years because I was playing fall baseball. You know, I didn't, I didn't do a lot of stuff in the summertime. I played 70 games every summer. My friends are going to concerts. My friends are, you know, having a good time at the beach and, and all these kind of things. And I just figured out young how to make it. And, and I think that helped me as I went along in the big leagues because you don't have your A stuff every day or every year even. You got to figure it out as you go. Right. Okay. So you were a phenomenally talented and bettable, let's say, um, high school prospect. Yeah. I became a, a really top prospect before my senior year. So in my junior summer, you know, before my senior year, uh, I went to a, a wood bat tournament, which was a, you know, top, all the top prospects in, in high school baseball went to this tournament, and I was the only guy to hit a home run. So all the scouts, oh my goodness, look at this kid from Maryland. We've heard about him, but you know he hit a home run in this tournament, and um, you know now he jumps to the top of the list of high school players. And Scott Boris's uh, office called me that summer and said we'd love to talk to you. Met with Scott and his group, and they were far and and above anybody else in the business in terms of professionalism, professionalism, mm-hmm. their preparation, their knowledge of the market, their knowledge of amateur baseball. They gave you a really good sense of, okay, this is the landscape of baseball. This is what your career is going to look like, and this is how you should make decisions based on that. So you signed with Boris. We'll jump ahead now. We'll come back. You signed with Boris, and he was your agent for, for many years, and he helped you sign or helped you get or you got with him uh, your ultimate deal, which was in 2009, coming to the New York Yankees, correct? Yep. Uh, Eight-year, $180 million deal, correct? Yep. All guaranteed? All guaranteed All in guaranteed. baseball, yep. Correct. Now, interestingly, however, um, you split with Boris a few years into that. And I guess on the one hand, I understand, like, why do you need an agent anymore once you're signing what's going to be the last deal in your career? But why why did you split? And talk to me about the relationship of an athlete like you and an agent like him. Yeah, you know, when I split with Boris, it was more practical reasons than anything else. It wasn't, we didn't have a falling out, there was none of that, but I was in New York and he's in L.A. And when you play for the New York Yankees and you're the starting first baseman and, you know, there's all these um, things that are put on your plate, you kind of need your agent closer. And so, um, you know, no pun intended, I hired Casey Close, who happens <laughs> to be a, a New York guy. He'd worked with Derek Jeter and, and the Yankees for, for years and years and so really understood the landscape of the Yankees and New York and, and charity and, and marketing and all these things that happen. Um, and so it just made me a little bit more comfortable being with an agent. Again, I didn't really need an agent, but just someone that could help me in New York and be closer. So I guess that gets to the question of what does an agent actually do for an athlete like you at that level? And also maybe help people understand the difference between, you know, in some industries in, in entertainment, a lot of uh, entertainers have an agent and a manager and they may have, you know, 18 other advisors and so on. When we think of an agent, we usually only hear of an agent with an athlete when they're negotiating or signing the deal or when something goes wrong and so on. But you're talking about all the different elements that come with being a major league uh, athlete. So, A, what does an agent do or or should they do? And then, B, why – what did you get Casey Close involved in? Yeah, well, what an agent does is it, he really helps support you from the time you sign your first contract or even before your first contract – and navigate you through the business waters, the professional waters, and all of the things that can happen to you until you're a free agent. In baseball, 
you don't make your living, your career until you're a free agent. And so what Scott Boris did for me, which was, and he's the best at it, at 18 years old, we started our relationship, and he taught me so much about the game. Him and, and some of his associates, Bob Brower was kind of my right-hand man, uh, Mike Fiore. He has a great group of guys around him that said, okay, Tex, you're 18 right now. When you're 26 or 28, you're going to be a free agent, and these are the things that you have to accomplish in your life and your baseball career to get you to free agency. That's where I think agents in baseball provide the most value. Once you sign your eight-year deal, you don't really right. need them that right. much. But right. but what Casey did for me um, when I hired him in 2011, I believe, was, you know, the Yankees, there's a lot of charity stuff that you're involved in. There's a lot of off-the-field distractions, and you know what? I started getting hurt a little bit, and you deal with with second opinions, and you deal with um, you know general managers questioning, hey, what's going on with Tex, and does he need surgery? That's where an agent later in your career can really help is is helping you um, take some of that pressure off your shoulders right. when when problems happen. And what about business opportunities? Is that their job to help bring some to you, or maybe filter out the bad from the good? Yeah, marketing opportunities, yes. But you know, honestly, baseball players don't have a lot of marketing opportunities unless you're Derek Jeter or Mike Trout. Um, you know, I did a handful of deals a year, so I knew I was going to do my Nike deal. I knew I was going to do my deal with Steiner Sports for my autographs, and then I had a handful of other you know print or local media type stuff. Uh, local appearances, so it wasn't it wasn't overwhelming. What about non sports related investment though? Where did those? So I know you're involved in a number of things. Some of them predate your retirement a couple of years ago. Um, where do those typically come from? Are they kind of a la carte ad hoc, or do you have a way for uh, soliciting and sorting? Yes, most agents don't do that for you. What they will do is they will hire somebody or point you in the right direction for financial literacy and for financial help and estate planning, and so. I'm with a group called Winpoint, uh, Joe Geyer and, and his group out of Baltimore. Joe went to my high school at Mount St. Joe you know, years before me, but um, had a really great relationship with a lot of the ex-Orioles and, and current players in Major League Baseball. And so he's my business manager. He's the one that handles all of my estate planning and all of my investments. And I like keeping them separate. Um, you know, it, it, if you have all of your eggs in one basket as an athlete, sometimes you'll make wrong decisions or sometimes you'll, your decision-making will get clouded. So I liked having that separation of, of power when it comes to business deals or, or investment opportunities. Now, Scott Boris encourages people to put a lot of eggs in one basket, yes, in terms of investment and mental guidance and so on, yeah? Yeah, Scott has, he has so many things that you can take advantage of under his umbrella. And investment you know, advice is one of them. But um, the, the mental conditioning that he has, Harvey Dorfman was um, kind of his right-hand man for mental conditioning, literally wrote the book, The ABCs of Pitching, The Mental Game of Baseball. Um, Harvey Dorfman was one of those guys that when I was young, when I was learning how to become a great major leaguer, I leaned on him immensely. And, you know, one of the great relationships of my young career was Harvey Dorfman. Gotcha. Um, okay. Well, one, one more thing about agents before we move on to your playing career. Um, there are those who argue that, you know, an inevitable conflict is especially a very successful agent, Boris maybe being the most – you end up having a roster, a lot of players in your stable, and then you're dealing with a market where you're only dealing with a limited number of buyers or only 30 teams. And for any given player, there might be a very limited uh, pool of, let's say, two, three, four teams that have the money and the need and so on. So there are those who argue that if you're with an agent, there may be an inherent conflict of interest in that they may 
gain leverage by dealing you low, by making a suboptimal deal. You're exactly right. And this is where every player needs to take control of his career. Um, you know, you're right. If I'm a first baseman and I want to go to a team that um, you know, is also looking at another player that, that my agent you know, has in his roster, there might be some horse trading there. <laughs> you know, okay, well, you know, take him, but then I got to find a place for, for Tex, and there's back and forth. Ultimately, the player has to take control. And I tell every young player, hire a great agent, but also know what he's doing. Right. And, and the best agents are, are good at that horse trading. They're good at getting their clients the best deal no matter what, but you have to pay attention. So walk me through the deal that you signed with the Yankees again. That was your final deal, and it was a, a massive free agent deal that set you and your family up for life, for generations. So it's, that's amazing, and congratulations because that's, you know, that's a great accomplishment. Going into that, you were coming most directly from the Braves? Uh, Braves and Angels. Braves right? and Angels, right. Yep. right. Um, walk me through that deal. What were the possibilities? And then talk about the negotiation of that deal and how you made the decision to come to the Yankees. Well, first of all, free agency is not a fun process. Um, as a major leaguer, I'm glad I only did it once. You feel completely helpless on one hand because uh, there's 30 teams out there, but really there's probably only five or six that are really interested and really want you. And I had a family. You know, I had two young kids and a wife that I wanted to make sure they were happy as well. So, you know, the process for me was not a lot of fun. Um, ultimately, it came down to the Yankees, Red Sox, Nationals, um, Angels, and Orioles. Those were the five teams that I had face-to-face uh, -face meetings with. I wanted to go to a place that had a chance to win every single year. And one of the things that Scott Boris always told me is, don't look at the Yankees' current roster. Don't look at their minor league system. This team does what it takes every year to be competitive. And playing in New York, playing – put those – pinstripes on, just had too much allure. Uh, and it helped that they, you know, matched the offer of, of uh, some of the other teams. Okay. You come to New York. New York loves you, even though you're not a typical, you know, New York has gotten behind a lot of guys who are a lot more aggressive than you, a lot <laughs> cockier than you. And you were like the nice, good, hardworking guy who also happened to be a phenomenal baseball player, very good hitter and a great defensive uh, first baseman. And then you get here. And first season out, you go and win the World Series. Um, talk about setting expectations. So talk, talk about the high and then the inability to, to win another one after that, what, what, that, what that was like. Yeah, my first year in New York in 2009 was a complete whirlwind. Um, you know, I'm getting lost on the way to the ballpark because <laughs> you know, the new Yankee Stadium was literally brand new. They opened the doors like three days before the season started. So all the navigation systems, you know, back in 2009, <laughs> you know, Waze and um, you know, Google Maps weren't around. Or, or weren't as good at least. And um, so I'm getting lost getting into the ballpark in the Bronx. And then you have to worry about, you know, hitting 98 mile an hour fastballs that night. So it was a complete whirlwind. We win the World Series. And before I knew it, spring training was, a, was around the corner. And when you get to the top of the mountain, you, you want to stay there. The pressure is always there. But, you know, the rosters just weren't as good. I mean, I think we can look at ourselves and say 2010 was the best chance we had to win again. thought we had a pretty good team in 2010. By 2011, 2012, we just ran out of gas at the end of the season. We didn't have the team that, that could make it that far. How much of that is age? A lot of it's age. Um, you know, we, we had a team that in 2009 were called old. 
I, at 28 years old, I was one of the kids on the team. And so you, know, you, you get here and, and you win, but then you look at the best players, you look around that, that locker room and go, man, we have a short window here. And that window closed in four years. But listen, in, in those four years, we made three ALCSs. We won a whole lot of games. And uh, yeah, we didn't win another one, but you know, not a lot of regrets there. Yeah. Your ultimate, um, I guess, decline as a player, you know, it's what happens. Players get older. They they don't keep getting better, except in rare cases like, you know, Barry Bonds. And those are usually a, a little bit chemically aided, as it, mm-hmm. as it turns out. Um, I'm curious about one thing. Um, so you were a, a, a rare, a relatively rare power hitting switch hitter. Um, there aren't a, a whole lot of them. Um, during your career, more and more teams started using more and more analytics some managers used to put a defensive shift on some players who pulled the ball a lot, but it became a lot more common. And so now defenses were putting a shift on you from the left side and the right side, and your numbers were going down. Now you were also getting older and declining as a player. No offense, that's what happens. Mm -hmm. I'm curious in retrospect um, whether the degree to which you think that rise in analytics and the use of the shift and so on was a contributing factor to your decline and how much of it was just the natural cycle of an aging baseball player? Yeah, I think it's probably, you know, 70, 30, just the, the natural age. Um, without analytics, I still would be retired. <laughs> uh, yeah, I still, my body, you know, analytics doesn't, you know, make your wrist blow out. Analytics doesn't make you tear up your knee, you know, the things that I had to deal with. So, um, but I would say that analytics you know, took numbers that should have been better and decreased. I mean, you know, studies show that that left-handed hitters hit 20 points lower just across the board because of analytics and because of the shift. Um, but, you know, for me, I was lucky enough to have a, a, a really great career for the first 10 years. Uh, I had a really great 10-year run. I blew out my wrist in year 11, and that just became very tough. I, I felt like I was playing catch-up. I had one more all-star season that I, I felt really good about, but – for me, it was much more the physical decline and the analytics side of it. Listen, if you're walking, if you're hitting doubles and home runs, the shift doesn't matter. And and the one year that I did make it back to the All-Star game, it's because I was really locked in. Physically, I felt I felt good and I was hitting doubles and home runs again. Right. Um, what are some ways that you benefited from analytics? Did you, I don't know if you were a tape rat, if you watched a lot of tape, and I'm curious whether you studied pitchers and so on for uh, their tendencies. I, I didn't benefit, I don't think at all. <laughs> I, I, I was not a tape rat. I was one of those guys, because I was a switch hitter, I didn't. I had too many things to think about anyway. I had two full swings, right? One swing is hard to keep up in Major League Baseball. I had two of them. So early on in my career, I basically told myself, I'm not adding more junk to my head and complicating things. I'm going to see the ball and hit the ball. Now, did I watch tape? Absolutely. Did I have positive reinforcement? I would, you know, I, it's called our hit tape, right? So you look back at when you're good. What are the the pitches you're swinging at? Where are you hitting them? You know, you know, where are your hands and your and your feet and and your legs? And what do you look like when you're hitting those balls? So I use positive reinforcement, but I wasn't the guy that went up there and said, "Okay, it's two to one. Um, this guy has a 73 percent chance to throw a backdoor slider here. I'm going to look." I never did that. Um, and there's a, a whole bunch of players that still don't look at tape. Right. Talk about that for a minute. You don't do that in part, I guess, because you don't think it's going to be productive. But also, I'm curious, you know, when you talk about sports where there's live action, um, as the batter, you're reacting to someone else throwing. It's, as a pitcher, it's a little bit different. You're generating the action. As a golfer, it's different. You're generating the action from the ball at stop. And in those cases, 
we know that the mind can really get in the way, right? Um, when you're reacting theoretically to some benefit because you don't have the time to, quote, think. But on the other hand, when you're in the batter's box and you're dug in and waiting for the pitcher, talk for a moment about that thought process and maybe when your mind does get in the way. Yep. I I had two different swing thoughts um, that depending on the pitcher was was my plan. Everyone says when you go up to the plate, you need to have a plan. And a guy that threw hard, you know, say 95 and above, my plan was get the head of the bat on the ball. Put the barrel of the bat, square the ball up wherever it goes is a positive. If a guy threw soft, you know, a Greg Maddox type guy, I looked for a, a location. I said, okay, I'm going to look for the ball away here. I'm going to stay on it. I'm going to stay square. I'm going to hit the ball the other way. Or say a guy threw a lot of curveballs. Okay, I'm going to wait for a curveball. I'm just going to sit, sit, sit. So that was my plan on fast guys or guys that threw softer. Where you get into problems was your first swing against that guy who's fast and it was a bad swing. You go, oh, wait a second. Um, I'm going to change my plan here, and I think he's going to throw. I think he's going to throw me a curveball, and I'm going to sit on curveball. And he throws you another fastball, and you break your bat because you're late. That's where your mind gets in the way when you should be keeping it very simple and reacting. You you complicate things, and then are slow to react or late to react, and then you're done in baseball. Did you see great hitters, however, who did think a lot at the plate in a way that you're describing is, was not productive for you? Yes, some players, you know, some guys joked, you know, he's so dumb, he's a great hitter. <laughs> see it, hit it, react, and there are a lot of great hitters that did that. Then there's Chipper Jones, just went into the Hall of Fame yesterday. Chipper Jones knew exactly what he was going to do on every single pitch. He He looked at at the tape, and he was a switch hitter too, so don't tell me how that worked. But <laughs> he, he really looked at pitchers, he set pitchers up, he sat on pitches, and you know, it helps that he was so talented eye hand contact. You know, his, his coordination was just amazing. But um, he was one of those guys that fought through every at bat. Coming up after the break, the mechanics of Mark Teixeira's swing. Hitting a baseball is still the hardest thing to do in sports. And how do you break a slump? I, I would go. I would go honey sometimes. Oh. <laughs> Peanut butter and honey. And if you haven't heard it yet, check out our ongoing Hidden Side of Sports series on any podcast app or on Freakonomics.com. We will be right back. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by IKEA. Can you believe how expensive life is these days? Well, with IKEA, you can furnish your space beautifully and affordably. When you shop at IKEA, every dollar gives more, more quality, more sustainability, more inspiration. When these things come together, you can make the most of every day. Plus, filling your bag can now be more affordable than ever because IKEA has hundreds of new lower prices on some of their most popular items. And don't worry, IKEA cuts costs without compromising quality. IKEA is making it more affordable than ever to furnish your entire home with home solutions you will love. Shop hundreds of new lower prices today at ikea-usa.com. That's ikea-usa.com. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Southern Company. 
As a national leader in carbon-free nuclear energy, Southern Company has a vision of a resilient energy future, and every day they're putting it in motion. That means balancing the responsibility and reliability of their existing infrastructure while also investing in carbon-free nuclear energy along with wind and solar power as an essential component of preserving our environment. With energy demand on the rise, their balanced approach to a net-zero future centers around creating jobs, helping communities thrive, and meeting demand for carbon-free energy in a way that's affordable, reliable, and safe for all. Because a stronger and more equitable tomorrow is only possible through investments in our communities today. Learn more at southerncompany.com. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on Cars.com? Here's how it works. You add your car to your garage to track its market value and cash in when the time is right to sell. Track both your car's historical and projected value. When it's time to sell, easily secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Let's get back now to our lightly edited full interview with Mark Teixeira, the former New York Yankees first baseman, one of the many athletes we've been speaking with for our Hidden Side of Sports series. I've heard you talk in the past about spring training. So I'd love you to describe this for people, again, who don't know baseball, but even who do. You've talked about every year you'd show up and it's like relearning, like uh, both from a confidence and a physical level, relearning to swing. I find it hard to believe that, but I'd love to hear you talk about it. Yeah, you know, when I say that, it's it's true. Every year I showed up to spring training, I had to learn how to hit major league pitching again because timing is so important, right? You know, if I got into a cage today, I'd still probably look like a big leaguer. You know, put me on a tee or throw, you know, 60-mile-an-hour softballs to me, I could probably still hit some balls, you know, and and look like a big leaguer. If you put me in a 95-mile-an-hour fastball situation with a guy that's got a slider and a changeup, I would look like I never played the game because I have no reference point. I haven't had one in a year and a half since, you know, since I retired, almost two years now. I have no reference point to the timing of when I need to start my swing and where that ball is going to be at the plate. And so that's what I mean when I say you have to figure out, you have to relearn how to hit major league hitting. It's all about that timing. It's right. not like riding a bike. Some guys it is, but for me it wasn't. Every year my timing from both sides of the plate had to get right, and that's one of the reasons most of the time I had a slow April. All right, and then for both sides of the plate, you've also referred – to how your right-hand swing and your left-hand swings were really different. So I'd like you to talk about that also. Again, for people who don't know baseball, it's, it'd be a little bit like watching, you know, a great basketball player with a jump shot start to shoot left-handed sometimes, right, when the situation called for it. It doesn't happen in other sports. Nope. In baseball, it does uh, for a variety of reasons, and it's an advantage, obviously. But can you talk about, I would imagine that one swing is a mirror image of the other. I gather, however, that it's not, correct? It's not because of uh, right-hand domination. So so I throw right-handed, I write right-handed, I do everything right-handed. So as a right-handed hitter, my top hand, my right hand, is the steering mechanism for the bat. And because of that, I was a better contact hitter right-handed because, you know, that dominant hand, your top hand steering it, I could steer the bat where I wanted 
left-handed, that right hand, dominant hand is the bottom hand. And that is my, that's my pull trigger. You know, the, the, the bat gets through the zone quick. I hit longer home runs left-handed. I hit more home runs left-handed. I was a much more uh, power hitter, much more pull hitter left-handed. More strikeouts lefty? Probably. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure I had more strikeouts lefty. I also hit the inside pitch way better left-handed. Right-handed, you could bust me in all the time. I was not a good inside hitter right-handed because, you know, I just didn't have the bat speed right-handed. And so that's why I had two different swings. Uh, it's not by design. It's just, you know, I picked up a bat left-handed and I just had a different swing. What about uh, dominant eye, though? I always wondered about this, you know, when I played baseball growing up, I was a right-handed batter. But then when I played uh, wiffle ball, I, I could hit great lefty. And I thought, you know, why was this? Obviously, it's a different ball. Different, Everything's different. And I was an okay switch hitter as a kid, but not good enough to actually do it in games. And then I started to wonder, maybe I'm just seeing it better. Or it's different. I'm curious about that. You were. You were seeing it better. I'm I am right eye dominant. How can you tell? You're, so, I see you holding yeah, up your hands so here. What you do you put put your hands in front of you in like in like a triangle? Yeah, yeah. Keep both eyes open and and f- point to a spot, you know, get it like you know, the microphone or something here. And then close oh, one eye yeah. and or close the other one. Whatever eye you see it with, that's your dominant uh, eye. Yeah. So I'm right eye dominant. That, so that being said, I could stay closed left-handed. Um, right-handed, I had to open up my stance and actually point my face towards the pitcher more so my right eye could see the ball better. But I'm naturally right-handed. And so because of being naturally right-handed, I was able to, you know, to always have better uh, plate discipline right-handed. But because I'm right-eye dominant, I was able to become a switch hitter. I'd like to see a statistic on switch hitters that are naturally right-handed that um, that are right-eye dominant. I would right. probably guess most of them are right-eye dominant. Now, considering that you figured that out, did you think about training your left eye? I tried. It, it, it's one of those, <laughs> you know, when you work out and you feel sore the next day, you know that it worked. What I did in the gym worked. I don't know if it works. I did eye uh, exercises for like two months. Um, kind of messing around with it, and I don't know if it worked, and so I just I ended up you know, letting it go. Again, I try to keep things simple. Baseball is a when you break it down is a very simple game. They throw a ball at you, and you got to hit it. <laughs> and I didn't want to complicate things. I'm not a quarterback in the NFL with 15 different plays or or 50 different options of that play. Um, I'm see the ball, hit the ball. Describe briefly your um, game day routine. Let's say it was a home game playing for the New York Yankees. You've got your family you live in Connecticut. Um, describe kind of from morning to night what the day was like. Yeah, so I slept in because, you know, your, your games are over at 10.30, 11 o'clock. You're not getting home until 12.30 or 1. So um, I slept in until probably 10 or 11 every day. Um, just hung out at the house, did nothing usually. Try to spend some time with my kids. When I was on the road, I'd, I'd sit in the hotel room or maybe take a little stroll and have breakfast or lunch, but um, I really tried to conserve as much energy as possible before the games. Leave for the ballpark around 2 o'clock. No golf on game days. No, never. I I would probably golf once or twice during the entire season. Wow. Uh, and I love golf, but I just didn't have the energy uh, to swing a golf club or, or be outside for four hours and then go play a game. 
And um, some guys do it, and I could never do that. So leave for about leave at about two o'clock. Get to the ballpark no later than three, um, and then start the process. I call you know start the process, which is you know you maybe grab a quick bite to eat um, because you have a long day ahead of you. Is this a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, or is that right before? The so game? yeah, before I became gluten free, it was always peanut peanut butter and jelly sandwich before the game. Okay. But um, you know, usually at three o'clock, it was like um, you know a, a grilled chicken sandwich or you know something semi healthy, but it, it gets you to that pregame meal. And, uh, you know, so I'd, I would do my stretching and kind of get ready for, for my batting practice session, take batting practice um, in the cage, kind of get loosened up in the cage, which is a T-drill, do that T-drill for, you know, 15 or 20 minutes, go back, do all my interviews, get that out of the way before batting practice. You go out to the batting practice and, and stretch, run, throw, take your ground balls, take your round of BP. And then it's like an hour of chill time before the game. So that's a, that's when you kind of let everything sink in. If you do need to get treatment, you know, on injuries, whatever you do that. If if you need to get extra stretching, if you need to watch video, whatever it might be, you do that in between batting practice and the game. Then at about six six fifteen, I grab that peanut butter and jelly sandwich uh, again before I became gluten free, and and then a cup of coffee because it's a long day and uh, you kind of need a little jolt before the game. And I was on the field by six forty. Did you um, – was there any um, mental um, uh, concentration, meditation, prayer, anything like that? It was more of the the routine got me locked in. I knew while I was doing my routine, the closer I got to game time, I looked at the clock, you know, and you always knew there's clocks all over big league clubhouses, <laughs> right? No one wants to be late for, for a stretch or a meeting or, or a game. Um, so there's clocks everywhere, and as the clock got closer to 7.05 – I just slowly got locked in. I didn't talk to a lot of people before the game. I didn't, you know, I wasn't very chatty. I was, I was focused, and I knew every single night that that the fans of New York expected me to go out there and make my plays at first, and hopefully get a hit or, or drive in a run. So I took that very seriously. Were you an anthem singer or an anthem hummer? Or I prayed during the anthem. That uh-huh. was my time. Mm-hmm. That was my, you know, my Christian faith is very important to me. And it's if not for the God-given ability that that I have, I wouldn't be playing Major League Baseball. So always gave thanks to God during uh, during the national anthem and um, said some prayers for my family and friends or people that were struggling or whatever was happening. And that also helped too because that was you know a minute or two where I could kind of lock in and um, you know get burdens maybe. That that are on my heart or on my mind, get them off my chest, and then go out and play the game. The anthem protests that have become a big deal in football have not hit baseball, and there might be a million different reasons why. I'm just curious your thoughts on that. You know, you're not only a, a longtime athlete, now retired athlete, sports commentator, but a bright guy who's involved in the real world. I'm curious what you make of those protests, and especially um, how it's affecting professional sports and the 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 perspective that the public has on professional athletes. Yeah, first of all, I I definitely think that players um, in leagues all over the world should speak out, uh, uh, you know, either for or against things that they they feel strongly about. The problem is, is you know, the Yankees pay me to play first base. They pay me to get hits. They don't pay me while I'm on the field to be a distraction. And whether you agree or you disagree with whatever I'm standing up for, during the game, you know, during the national anthem, especially when when we're honoring um, the country and we're honoring those who have fought for our freedom, I just don't think that's the right platform. Now, in, in after the game, in the off season, when when you're home and or, or you're in your own community, that there's there's issues going on. 
absolutely speak up because athletes and celebrities have a very strong platform. But whether it's the Dallas Cowboys or New York Yankees or Golden State Warriors, you know, we are paid to to play a sport and we're paid to, while we're on the field, while we're in the uniform, to respect the rules of that league or, or that team. And I just don't think that the, the national anthem is a time to make that stand. So I hear that argument. Here's a counter. Some people would say, you know, that a, a pro athlete, it's a little bit like Cinderella. When you're in the zone, when you're wearing the dress before midnight, you're a different person. Everyone's paying attention. When you're in uniform during a game, that's when you have the most leverage. And then, no matter how prominent an athlete you may be, if you're doing an interview even immediately after the game or during the offseason with your local media or whatnot, and you say, hey, listen, this is a big problem that I see. It might be domestic violence, income inequality, police brutality. We know those stories get coverage. But compared to the leverage that you have during the game, it's like, what, one one-thousandth, one-ten-thousandth. Yeah. And so, you know, on the, so on the taking the devil's advocate position, I could see why, man, if I'm an athlete, I know that the only way I have a chance to really raise hell is to do it right now. And you're saying that's inappropriate because – you know, you're essentially there to do one job. and Well, you're also an employee, right? So I have a really cool job at ESPN, right? If I took, you know, baseball tonight tomorrow during the trade deadline show and said, hey, guys, just stop for five minutes because I have something I want to talk about, I'd probably be fired, you know, because I'm an employee and I have to do what I'm told when it comes to certain rules and regulations of... Now, if the league says, hey, you guys do whatever you want... Hey, that, that, that's great. Do whatever you want. But um, I think the NFL has seen the the protests be a double-edged sword. While they're proud of their players standing up for certain things or or whatever it might be, they also have to understand that there's a whole lot of people that don't appreciate it. And um, you know, probably not the best time to be you know, taking a stand right before a game when they know it's going to be a distraction. There's also obviously a lot of class and ethnic racial considerations here. And I want to ask you about that on a baseball team. There are scholars who argue that sports teams are among the best institutions, along with the military, by the way, at building what they call social trust, meaning, you know, basically you feel someone's got your back, even if you don't know them. Um, and they say that sports teams in particular, and again, the military, where people from very different backgrounds come together, you emerge from that as if you're, you know, you've got a lot in common. And I'd love you to talk about that for a moment. A, if you experienced it, and B, if you think there's any way to kind of port that over into the real world without yep. making everyone join the Yankees. I, I agree completely. Um, you know, during my career, I played with black, white, Asian, um, you know. Um, people from Dominican, um, Venezuela, wherever it might be, and we all got along. I mean, 99.9% of, of athlete teammates get along. Now, they don't be best friends, but get along on the field. Why? Because there's a common goal in the military. Why do people in the military get along? Because there's a common goal. And where I think we can use that in society is let's not always harp on our differences. Could we have Me and you could spend an hour talking about what we disagree with. That would not be a productive hour time together. We would rather talk about interesting things in economics and sports and, and, and life and things that we, we enjoy about life, happy things in life, things that are positive. If we continue to harp on negative things in society or, or, or the, the mainstream media, you're going to have these issues. But sports and the military, as you said, 
we're always focused on how do we win this game? How do we become a closer team to win this game for our fans and, and for our front office and our ownership or whatever it might be? Because let's not talk about, I'm sure we have differences. I'm sure we don't agree on every single thing. That's human nature. But what we can agree on is working hard together and, and showing up on time and, and being accountable to each other and, and working towards that common goal. Let me ask you this about something you just mentioned about how we focus on the negative. It does seem to be a human trait. It does, however, also seem to be magnified by the current, meaning contemporary landscape, meaning communication, media, and so on. There are people who will do a comparison. If you look at like a European king in the 17th century versus like the middle billion of the world right now, that the life of the middle billion today is better than the king on every ground except housing because palaces and castles are hard to hard to be. But in terms of just about everything else, life has gotten so, so, so much better. And yet we don't talk about that too much yep. and acknowledge it. We we do tend to focus on these differences often. And, and I'm curious, look, you're you're an athlete. You're not a philosopher, or a, a psychologist or whatever, but I'm curious to know if you have a perspective on that. Yes. Um, it's a great perspective. You know, one of the things I do when I pray is, is I thank God for being born in the United States. So I won the lottery just by being born in the United States. The freedoms that we have, the um, the opportunities that we have, there's no guarantee. Obviously, there's a lot of pain and suffering and poverty that we're all trying to, to, to help and fix. But, but you have the opportunity because of the freedoms that we have in our country. And so we can sit here and focus on all the negative things in our country, and there's plenty of them. You know, we could fill a hundred of these podcasts with all the <laughs> negative things that are happening in our country. Well, we do that most weeks, just so you know. But, <laughs> but um, let's wake up a little bit um, and be thankful for what we have because there's a lot of places in this world that if I was born into, I, I would not be even close to the person I am today or even have close to the opportunity because you start life with two strikes against you um, in, in third world countries or countries where where you have no freedom. And um, so I'm just, I'm lucky to be born here and, and to live here. Scholars say another way in which athletes and sports teams uh, produce a social cohesion is that uh, conflict resolution is handled really differently on sports teams. They say that outside of sports and the military, there's a lot of passive aggressive, right? So in an office world, you might send someone email with some snarky wording as opposed to going up and saying, hey, listen, you did this, I did that, blah, blah, blah. Tell me about a case or maybe a general scenario. Maybe it's a, a teammate. Maybe it was something, you know, Jeter was famous for being uh, a, a good captain on a number of dimensions. Talk about a way that you saw a problem get resolved on a team that you think is very different from the real world. That's a great point because I love it when guys bark at each other real loud for 20 seconds and yeah. then it's over. Yeah. Because that is way more effective at conflict resolution than a guy for three weeks or, or the whole season, right? Being <laughs> passive aggressive and then creating this really weird situation around both these players, and then it permeates to the rest of the team. Then you start having clicks. I would much rather, and I've, I've done it with coaches, with players, where we've had it out, you know, almost fist fight, and then 20 minutes later, you're fine. Give me a for instance. What do you, what's the so scenario? In, what do you say? In 2015, um, my third base coach, Joe Espada, who, who I love, um, told me to, to hold up at third base because I was going to score easily, ended up getting thrown out. 
And he just, he just he just missed just totally just kind of botched the situation and and he knew he botched it and I almost got hurt I almost you know I had to kind of half slide and and it looked terrible and and we needed the run and all these things and so I went into the dugout and I just started throwing stuff I just I just went nuts I had this like that rage. doesn't sound very text to me no I had this like rage inside of me because I was so mad at the situation the situation lasted 15 minutes I told Joe after the game we're all good. Hey, I know you're trying your best. We're and it, it was done. It was over with. And I think those type of situations, you see Tom Brady, one of the best of all time, barking at his coaches, barking at his offensive linemen, barking at his receivers. But guess what? People take less to go play for the Patriots. Coaches, you know, take demotions to stay with the Patriots because they want to be a part of the Bill Belichick, Tom Brady atmosphere that that they create there. My uh, Freakonomics co-author Steve Levitt did some research and he found that pitchers essentially throw too many fastballs. Okay, so part of this is maybe mistaken belief and part of it is uh, that many people are not good at randomizing, which is a a useful trick when you're trying to, you know, in any game theory kind of thing. So let me just read you a a tiny bit of this. I'm really curious to know what you have to say. Um, When there are two strikes is when the, the scenario really happens. When there are two strikes... Fastballs generate an OPS that's on base plus slugging percentage that is more than 100 points higher than non-fastballs. The authors calculate that if a team's pitchers reduce their share of fastballs by 10 percentage points, they would allow roughly 15 fewer runs in a season, about 2% of their total runs. Yep. And I, I agree 100%. The issue is, is you have to take the pitcher's um, skill and ability to perform that skill with two strikes. So the pitchers that can throw curveballs and change-ups and sliders with two strikes, do it. <laughs> the guys that may maybe bounce that pitch or hang that pitch are going to throw fastballs, and so they're going to get hit. So the best pitchers in baseball, they throw more sliders and curveballs and change-ups with two strikes because they can control it better. And the last thing you want to do is get a guy down 0-2, throw three straight sliders in the dirt because you can't control that pitch, and then have to come back with the 3-2 fastball because the hitter knows that you can't throw a slider for a strike. You don't have any confidence. Your catcher doesn't have any confidence, and you throw in an off-speed pitch for a strike, and the hitter's geared up for a fastball, and that's why those numbers get up there. So what we need to ask Levitt, and I'm sure this is in the paper, and I don't have it off the top of my head, is whether they controlled for the efficacy of the pitcher. Yes. Because right? you're saying the good pitchers won't do it. I agree. That, I think that's the issue. I think the best pitchers can execute those pitches. I feasted. My entire career was based on a guy you know, not getting me to chase the curveballs and the sliders in the dirt and having to come with a fastball over the middle of the plate. That was the style of hitter that I was. So did you in your mind know, whoever's on the mound, you know that they're the kind of pitcher who doesn't have the ability to throw the the cutting? Yes. The off- so, so that was the preparation that I had. Right. So, so I would ask the, the pitching coach if I didn't know this guy. Now, once I was in the big leagues for four or five years, I started knowing the players, and then I would only ask the hitting coach, hey, this guy's a rookie. What's his percentage of off-speed strikes? Right. And if his percentage of all-speed strikes was really low, I'm just sitting dead red fastball. Mm-hmm. What, why would I take into account you know, a slider or change-up or, or, or split-finger fastball that he doesn't throw for strikes? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bet that the numbers hold up. He's not going to throw a strike with that off-speed pitch, and he's going to have to throw me a fastball that I can then hammer. Who were the pitchers that just plagued you during your season? 
during your yeah. career? Sorry. The guy that I had the worst time against was James Shields. Did not hit him well. Did not hit Justin Verlander well. Well, join the um, join the crowd. Yeah, and then and then you have weird guys like uh, like Aaron Seeley who who mm. didn't throw more. You know, by the time I faced him, didn't throw more than eighty six miles an hour. I just could not hit him. Um, and so you know, some really good pitchers had my number, but there are also some guys that you know weren't all stars every season that had my number as well. And does it become self enforcing after a while? A pitcher like Seeley, you think, man, I can't hit the guy. And then- Sometimes it does. Yeah, confidence is huge in baseball. That's why. Uh, baseball teams and baseball players are so streaky. You know, you have these, these guys that hit seven homers in a month and don't hit one for <laughs> you know for six weeks, or uh, you know a pitcher that wins fourteen straight games and then the last month of the season can't get out of the third inning because the confidence to swing at good pitches to to get good results it builds on itself. Um, and that's you know you've heard hitting is contagious. Well, it's not physically contagious, but mentally, when I see the three guys in front of me just got hits, I go up there going, hey, this guy can be hit today. You know, he, he might be an all-star, but this guy's going to get hit because those three guys in front of me just got base hits, and now I'm next. Were you ever totally lost at the plate? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it, it happened. I had I had stretches, whether it was a week or even a month, where I said, this might be my last week in baseball. I I am so bad right now. There is no way I'm getting another hit in Major League Baseball. I look awful. I feel awful. I can't get a hit. But then something just snaps. And, And it's just like in golf when you can't make a short putt. Like, you know, you go an entire round or maybe an entire week where you play three rounds and you don't make anything within four feet. You just can't make that putt. Or your driver, your snap hook and everything. And no matter what you do, no matter what you try, you just can't hit that driver straight. Happens in baseball all the time because it's a very hard skill. Hitting a baseball is still the hardest thing to do in sports. And, you know, you have guys on the mound that are trying to get you out. And if you're off a little bit mechanically, mentally, confidence-wise, and he's on – you can have some bad nights. So how do you get back to success? Because I'm sure you're trying to adjust. You're trying to adjust mechanically, psychically, and so on. Um, what actually works? Shock the system. So we, we talked about you know tricking the system, shocking the system. So it's either taking more batting practice or taking no batting practice. It's you know changing your bat. It's um, you know, you know, changing the way you stand just a little bit, you know, altering your stance just a little bit. Um, you know, maybe just get like a hard workout in. You know, maybe maybe I'm a little too jumpy. I got a little bit too much energy. Let me get a hard workout in before the game. I'm going to be a little slower, a little bit tired during this game. Or the opposite. Hey, I'm exhausted, so I'm going to sleep all day. I'm not going to take batting practice. I'm going to get a massage and really try to be fresh. It's just completely changing up your system. Would you ever change the PBJ? Uh, yeah. I, I would go. I would go honey sometimes. Oh, big, that was your <laughs> peanut butter and honey. That was my. Is that, that your slump food or that was the slump break? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's <laughs> radical. Um, <laughs> I'm crazy. Yeah, you are. Um, for people again who don't play baseball or know baseball, um, I'd like you to describe a scenario. So you were a very, very, very good defensive first baseman, um, which is valuable and but not necessarily so appreciated by the casual fan. There's one aspect of playing in the field um, that I think uh, people would love to hear about, which is what you're doing in your mind before every pitch. So I'd love you to describe, maybe pick a scenario. If it's a real one, all the better. And maybe it's a tight game, and maybe there's a runner on first and maybe second, and uh, and maybe you're holding the runner, uh, depending. And then you're thinking, uh, here's my pitcher, there's the batter. What pitch is going to be thrown, and what do I do if it's hit to third, to short, to second, to me, on the ground, in the air, and so on? Just talk about that moment. 
Yeah, so when I was at first base, I would actually uh, play the entire scenario in my head. So I would say two and one, one out, ball hit to me, to my left, I'm going to second. Ball hit to my, you know, ball hit in front of me, I'm just getting the out, whatever it might be. So I would play the entire scenario ahead of time, and I would actually position myself and then look to my right and left and maybe sometimes even behind me and and say, okay, well, if the ball's hit this way, I'm going to do that. If the ball's hit like this, I'm going to do that. So I was kind of, uh, I got bored during games. And so I started doing this probably five or six years into my career where I would actually play the game in my head in between <laughs> pitches. And it kept me from getting bored, but it also had a really nice um, uh, result that I actually was prepared for when those different balls were hit to me. And it actually worked out. Now, it, doesn't everybody do that? I mean, I remember learning that in Little League. I mean, yeah. that's... Well, everyone's supposed to do that, but a lot of guys don't. Really? A lot of guys completely space out. I mean, listen... You when no one's on, it's pretty easy. But when 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 there's guys on base, it kills me to see fielders going to the wrong base, not being prepared for different situations. Outfielders not hitting the cutoff man. These are little things in baseball that I learned when I was young, that that I don't think it taught anymore. I, I think you have a lot a lot more players that are worried about analytics. And don't spend the time on the nuances of baseball and the skills and the, the subtleties that make you a great player. Right. We recently interviewed uh, Lance Armstrong on the show, and he argued that he and his team started taking EPO because everybody else was doing it. And that if they didn't, they were they were goners, that there was just no way to compete. Uh, you played in an era um, in which uh, kind of the end of the big steroid era in which some of the best home run hitters in history were turned out to have all many of them doping Mark McGuire, Barry Bonds. Um, and then a few of your very prominent teammates, great baseball players, Alex Rodriguez, Robinson Cano, Melky Cabrera also were found to be were found to be doping. I'd love to talk. I'd love to hear about. First of all, let's start with this. Um, did you ever use performance enhancing drugs? No, never. Okay. Um, and I told myself I got offered my rookie year, and I told. What'd you get offered? Um, I don't even know what it was. I mean, I don't, I don't like know what the names or something. Are. You know, like, uh, a, some pill. I don't know. I'm not sure what it was. Um, and a, a, who te offered? a teammate. I'm not gonna say who offered. But I mean, but it was a, te a teammate. A, te a teammate. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he said, uh, he said, Tex, you can't play this game on milk and cookies. <laughs> and I kind of just told him, like, you know, my, you know, flippant self at at uh, you know, 22 years old. I said, Well, I'm gonna try. And, and I, I told myself right then and there, if I have to take drugs, illegal steroids, to play this game, I'll retire. It, it's, it's not something. That's the way I was, I was brought up. It's wrong. I, I, mean, I, I can't stand people that make excuses for breaking the rules. You know, our union has made rules and agreed to rules because it's for the betterment of our entire union and for the betterment of the game of baseball. We agree to these rules. If you knowingly break those rules, you should be punished to the utmost degree. And I don't, I don't think our punishments are hard enough. I think we should have um, you know much stricter enforcement of of the rules and much stricter punishments. And I was just you know one of the the highlights of my career is I can look at kids. I speak to kids all the time. You know, speak to kids in Harlem, in the Bronx, and, and you know at home in Baltimore, wherever it might be. 
And one of the things I'm proudest to say of them is like, yeah, I had a nice career, but I didn't have to take steroids Hmm. to make it. And you don't have to cut corners because what kind of message am I telling kids or telling my own children? I have a 12, 10, and 7-year-old. What kind of message am I telling them? Hey, kids, it's okay to break the rules. It's okay to cheat. It's okay to lie. It's okay to steal. These are just terrible things that we're teaching our children that um, you can go do these things in professional sports and get away with it and really just get a slap on the wrist. I know you got to go. One more question for you. Um, As I said, um, you had a very, very good career, Um, way better than solid. Some people say about different players' careers solid. It it was a long and very good career. There was a World Series. There were a lot of individual honors. You hit uh, very, very well. Uh, You fielded great. Um, The Hall of Fame, it's a funny thing. Um, Election these days is contentious in part because the baseball writers – who elect the Hall of Fame candidates, um, they've decided they don't want steroid players in the Hall, which is uh, controversial. So there are a lot of guys who are not going in. I'm curious to know um, your feelings about it. Obviously, you want to get in. Uh, I'm curious to know whether you feel you deserve it. I know you're a humble guy and you're probably not going to say yes, (laughs) but I'd love to know what that thought process is like as you're in this period right now between the end of your career and when you're eligible? Yeah, you know, I think about it, you know, definitely, but um, I don't think I'll get in. I, I think that I had a great career uh, under different metrics. Um, I, I do believe that some of the steroid guys are already in, and there, you know, there's some guys that have taken um, PEDs that are in the Hall of Fame. Everyone, everyone knows that. But um, I think you're going to start seeing uh, some of those players get in. Uh, and I just think that that under those metrics, I'm and not that'll a, and that'll keep you out. You're I, I'm not a Hall of Famer. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, 400 home runs um, when when guys were hitting 50 a year. Um, you know, my 30 a year didn't look so good. <laughs> Don't you think they might redo the metrics a little bit and give extra points for playing clean? I hope so. Yeah, if, if that's the case, I have a, a much better chance. But uh, it's not something I think about more than a few times a year when we have these type of conversations. But it's not something that I think about all the time. Did you lead the league in PBJs or were a lot of guys doing I'm that? I'm sure I did. I'm sure I did. And I also, you know, one of the cool stats that I do own is um, most hit by pitch in my career right? by a switch hitter. Oh, nice. Yeah, so yeah. I, got that, I got that hanging. And um, you know, the one of the, the things I'm most proud of is, uh, is is hitting 30 homers and driving in 100 runs for eight straight years. Because the first time I did it, I had to pinch myself. I said, I was a second-year player playing for the Rangers, and I said, oh my goodness, I just I just hit 30 homers and drove in 100 RBIs. And being able to do that eight straight years is the thing I'm most proud of. Yeah. Uh, it was a great career as a New Yorker. I enjoyed watching you with the Yankees, and I especially enjoyed getting to talk to you today. So thank you so much. Thank you. As you could probably tell, I really enjoyed this conversation with Mark Teixeira. I hope you did too, and I hope you enjoyed getting this bonus episode. We will be back with our regular weekly episode, as always, Wednesday at 11 p.m. Eastern Time. Freakonomics Radio is produced by Stitcher and Dubner Productions. Our Hidden Side of Sports series was produced by Anders Kelto and Derek John, with help from Alvin Melleth, Matt Straup, and Harry Huggins. Our staff also includes Allison Craiglow, Greg Rippon, and Zach Lipinski. The music you hear throughout our episodes was composed by Luis Guerra. Our show can also be heard on NPR stations across the country. Check your local station for the schedule. Also on Sirius XM, Spotify, and even your better airlines. Thanks for listening. Stitcher. Justin and so good. 
thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.